through that email list and we started messaging and surveying and bringing all of those people into the product uh, development experience. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to find the right co-founder for your startup, how to build a highly engaged 20,000-person pre-launch email list, and the difference between what angel investors and what venture capitalists care about when they hear you pitch. Today, I'm joined by Will Africano from Narbox. Narbox develops products to revolutionize the multimedia management experience. which started in 2015 and based out of Santa Monica, California. Welcome, Will. Thank you, Felix. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about the, the product. You know, I gave you I gave that quick uh, elevator pitch. What's the product that <laughs> put you guys on the map? Yeah, so Narbox actually is a rugged backup device for content creators who prefer to travel without a laptop. You know, the whole idea and premise behind it is uh, basically creating a small computer that's optimized for, uh, for, for photo and video backup. Um, so any content creator doesn't have to bring their laptop out with them. And with a Wi-Fi on board, you can actually use your phone or iPad to in, in our uh, dedicated mobile apps to actually manage the files, see the files, even begin edits. So you can prepare you know, your workspaces for when you get back to your computer. Um, you know, out in the field is definitely like where we thrive. Got it. Did you have experience starting businesses or creating products previously? No, actually, I I, uh, I did not. Mm, this is a pretty technical product to to start off with. Like it's, it has a lot of. You talk about software. You talk about hardware. You talking yeah. about something that is holding lots of valuable data for for customers. Where did you even f- decide? How did you even how did you begin to decide to go down this this path? Yeah, like I, I think like any. Uh, entrepreneur, it was a matter of trial and error. So, you know, we started with one idea and, and by we, I mean, me and the other founder, Tim Fees, and we started, uh, just ideating on drives to and from, uh, Los Angeles and the Eastern Sierra Mountains. And we were, we were going through this process of recording data out in the mountains, landscape photography. Uh, videography and on our way back every time we just were in this tangled mess of computers trying to swap footage, create backups, prepare, you know, uh, shared editing spaces so that when we did get back home and go to our nine to fives on Monday morning, uh, you know, we were at least dialed enough to begin editing in the evenings and, and preparing a video and the photos that we wanted to capture those moments that we were creating in the, in, on the weekends. And on those drives, we started to come up with uh, mobile applications to try and enhance our sharing experiences. But really what we found the biggest problem to be, um, and through trying to create mobile apps and web apps and all sorts of bad ideas, I would admit, uh, we really realized that the biggest, the biggest issue we had was that, that in the field backup, the requirement to have a computer and be limited on battery supply um, and trying to just get files off of cameras and into the net as fast and short as possible. And we focused on that and that workflow. And it took us a year really before, um, we came up with the concept of Narbox. On the technology side, we met, uh, it was our 
fourth founder actually there was a third and he left uh along the way and you know through one of those app experiences and then there's a a new technologist that that joined our team and he came in with a background of hardware and introduced the concept of you know what happens if we take say a beagle bone or a raspberry pi and start to hack it together to create this backup device um you know then we started to architect uh the rugged requirements of it and we did we created a big challenge and how do you make a computer pack into your pocket all while being waterproof? You know, it's a high heat output while being completely waterproof. So you're trapping all that heat in. And we made uh, a really complex piece of hardware. And um, yeah, I mean, took a took an army, really took a, the whole community, everyone we met in our network um, to get it off the ground the first time. Narbox 1.0 was uh, kickstarted out and had pretty great success, you know, over 500k raised in 30 days, basically off of a concept. It took us two years to bring it to market, which was delayed significantly. Um, but after that, yeah, we sold uh, nearly 10,000 units of that first one in, in less than a year. So it was pretty um, awesome to see market demand. Yes, yeah, so you didn't have an experience launching products. It sounded like your very your your partner that you're doing these drives with also didn't have an experience, but you did have a co-founder that you brought yeah. on that did have experience. Exactly, and, and yeah, we was always trying to find that technological co-founder um, to bring on and 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 really help us architect mm-hmm. the system. And you know, eventually we brought on more and more people and, and built the team out now all the way up to twenty three people. Uh, primarily software and hardware engineers. Yeah, I think it's important that you either partner or build a team or your first, your early hires are going to fill in those gaps that, that you have. How did you find your, your because you did the, the part that you guys are lacking was the technical know-how, how do you guys build this thing? How did you find that partner to, to fill that gap? Yeah, we were on startuppers.com, I believe, and just doing like, you know, like speed dating with technologists. And through those conversations where they started to hone in on our vision and what we wanted to make. And at that, po- at that point in time, it was very close to being like, Hey, we're going to close the book on, on our ideas here and maybe move on. Um, and then when we met our founder and start, started to spring up the hardware, fe- uh, the hardware roadmap, uh, we realized that it was unlocking, you know, an answer that was significant that helped us finance our operations in, in addition to um, solve a market need. So this website that you were going, it was called startuppers.com? Yeah, I believe it was startup. I mean, this was a while ago, but it was startuppers.com. It was like a, 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 just like a way to meet other people trying to make stuff. Yeah, basically, if, the, if startuppers.com doesn't exist anymore, the idea is like there's like this kind of like partner co-founding uh, dating sites essentially where you can try to find matches so what did you what did you guys go into it looking like how do you determine especially if it's not someone that was there from the very very beginning like these drives that you're doing is ideation phase and you're bringing someone a little bit later but you know it's still considered a co-founder what are you looking for in that type of person to make sure that they're going to be a good fit with the existing team yeah, I think in the, the very, very early stages, it's it's cultural, it's uh, a shared value and enthusiasm and dedication because you're taking on huge commitments and sacrifices and time. And so, you know, obviously you need to meet certain technological requirements, have certain experience levels, whether it's bringing products to market before or um, being parts of teams and organizations that have done that. Or maybe if it's a software being uh, based or rooted in similar um, uh, spaces and languages. 
Um, but for us, yeah, because it was, we, we ended up pivoting over into hardware. Um, it was a combination. And I think more than anything, though, it was having experience and having a cultural and dedication fit. There was a passion, shared passion for the problem that we, the, we were all facing. And that's really what helped bring us together. Mm-hmm. And is this something that you can just find out through conversation or are there other ways that you recommend people, do, things that people do to make sure that they, there is a good fit before this commitment? Well, yeah, sometimes it's a, a leap of faith because it can create problems and, um, you know, it's a, you're splitting equity and, and, you know, there's a lot of history in organizations and startups and in particular where founders have, you know, they have fallouts and, um, that's, that's, that's a thing that definitely happens and you want to be really cognizant of it going into it. But I think you're living in such a high risk in wild west environment um you kind of have to go with your gut a little bit and through a number of conversations that's that's how we made that decision i mean we had conversations where within uh 10 minutes we were spinning up so many ideas that that were going to solve so many of our problems within our vision like you know we just had that shared passion for problem solving and solving this particular problem that we had and we were coming up with meaningful solutions in those first early conversations mm. what what are some things that you can do to limit things like fallout or disagreements or mismatches later in you know after you've started working together and then years later things don't work out are there things that can be done to to mitigate that well there's i'm sure there's a number of reasons that these faults have happened um you know, this is only my first company, so I, I, I wouldn't imagine, you know, I don't have a ton of experience in understanding how to mitigate fallout. Mm-hmm. It's personality, it's culture, it's, you know, maybe the, the vision of your, in the path of your journey of your organization is going to change over time. And if it's not a shared vision, then, you know, maybe the fallout exists. I would say preventing that just means staying, uh, you know, having really strong communication. Um, we, we are big advocates of kind of having leadership meetings and weekly standups because as we kind of disperse into our own branches of, of responsibilities, it's, uh, you might lose touch with one another over time and just making sure you're, um, cornering off time and, and blocking off time to just keep your relationships healthy, um, is really important. And, and I've actually come in contact with, uh, someone who, who provided counseling to leadership teams just to, just to make sure like tensions never got too high. Right. Um, it wasn't someone we ended up bringing on, but just the concept existing was, was eye opening to be like, you need to keep these relationships strong in order to carry the vision through to the end, um, without those fallouts. So just doing basic team building and and basic, um, relationship. and, And we practice, uh, uh, you know, nonviolent communication in our organization. Um, you know, we have a deliberately developmental organization taking on some of these more modern practices and studies to just make sure that we're um, we're communicating effectively and, and calmly and, and rationally. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you guys are certainly active in making sure that there's strong communication with these leadership meetings, these stand-ups. What goes on during, what, 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 do you, what do you want to make sure happens during these meetings to make sure that the communication is strong, that everything that needs to be out there is out there in the open? Yeah, yeah, there's, you know, there, um, we have a couple different um, systems. So we have, a weekly stand up that is about 30 minutes 
And then biweekly, we do an hour to hour and a half uh, lunch. And that's just, I mean, that's, that's pretty frequent time blocks. And sometimes, you know, the range of topics in, go from things we're trying to implement in the organization, the cultural internal levels, maybe we're bringing up high level decisions like fundraising, um, hires and, 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 and fires even, um, just all of those really impactful uh, decisions, budgeting and forecasting comes up. But in all of those meetings, we have space for open forum discussion. And with that, you can bring up anything from, hey, I'm having this particular issue on my team, or I think as a leadership team, we need to improve this. And hey, we're lacking this type of communication. Or just if you have a specific topic or a problem that you can bring it up in that space, it's a safe space. Um, and we, we definitely are cognizant of it being a safe and really like non-heated and calm, like just having time allotted to it, right? Being cognizant of it and bought into it is really what it takes. Got it. Now, if during one of these meetings, there are multiple people that are super passionate about a problem that, that they think that the company should be focused on solving, how do you guys think about prioritization? How do you decide what the company should be focused on? Yeah, I mean, we have a backlog of things to, to work on. And, and what we do is, um, so we kind of map our our um, tension or like organization tensions and, and priorities. And we just try and work through them. In, in a, we, we actually dedicated a, a certain amount of time um, a couple of times a year just to bring up tensions and, um, can, and, and prioritize them. And through these weekly and biweekly meetings, we are kind of whittling down that list and obviously things um come up not you know ad hoc like hey the the this deal is on the table it's the hottest topic of discussion and that becomes the top agenda point for the meeting um and just making sure that that meeting exists and you know we people we're at a point where um most of the founders are just blocking off every minute of their day to just be in their own calendars just to be as organized and um efficient as possible with with their time because it's easy to without proper planning each week to just get a little lost and, and lose sight of those prioritizations so uh yeah just kind of tracking there's a, there's a really great um you know article created and, and concept created by the ready it's a medium post and it's called the os canvas um and it's just a really cool way to map tensions priorities across the entire organization, looking at your organization as an operating system. And this is the tool that we've used to kind of manage um, what the prioritizations are, because it just does a simple percentage ranking um, and you can get input from the entire organization on these. Everything from structure and space, so what's going on in the office, to, uh, to purposes and values, the policy and governance, strategy and innovation, people development, motivation, finance and forecasting, um, targets. And this canvas keeps an active um, visual mapping of, of the really the red, yellow, green in our organization. And reds usually take the highest priority. Got it. So the OS canvas, if anyone wants to check it out, we'll link all that in the show notes. Now, 
I want to take a step back to the very beginning. I think one thing you mentioned was that you guys were had this problem that you were trying to solve. You came up with different solutions. Should it be an app? Should it be hardware? What should it be? Can you say a little bit more about this? Because I think there's a situation that others are in where they they recognize there's a problem and they come at it with one solution, but it might not be the right one. How did you guys know what solution you should be focused on to solve the very same, the, the exact same problem? Yeah, you know, well, so one of the things that drove us, though, was financing abilities. So maybe we had a good idea in the the mix for solving a problem that was in our general space of study, which was workflow. And we were really focused in the beginning on the sharing elements. So taking content, and I've already made my content now, how do I take it from a computer um how do I take it to a computer to an environment where I get the most out of my content? At that time, Instagram was emerging and really has emerged to be such a, a powerful application that, you know, I'm glad we didn't go that route. Um, but it was a willingness to, to scrap an idea to just say, this isn't possible given our current resources um, is, is a way to look at it. Like, so can I, do I have the financing? Do I have the technological means? Do I have the team or the expertise or the experience um, to be able to create create this idea? So it was almost like a process of elimination for you guys? Yeah, there was a little process of elimination there for us. And then the other side of it is like, is there a need for this? So had we proven out that there wasn't demand for it, then you know we wouldn't have gone down that path. Kickstarter provided a really good opportunity to take an idea, basically create a prototype um, while moonlighting, um, keeping our full-time jobs and, um, work, working all nights and, uh, eventually like dropping those jobs once we started to get quick response from investors, which that was the first feedback. Like we had app ideas. We've been pitching, 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 pitching. Uh, we had web ideas, cloud ideas, pitching, 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 no bites. And, you know, as soon as we put this hardware concept together and we felt really, really strongly about this being a proper solution and had a clear path to financing with it, given we had Kickstarter to rely on for that and any crowdfunding platform for that matter, um, it became a much easier pitch. And once we made a prototype, we went into our first investor meeting, showed that we could back up files and stream them to a phone with 4K transcoding using a hacked beagle bone. And uh, yeah, we got money on the spot. So that that became that first point of feedback. With that money, we were able to finish the prototype and and start to set up manufacturing. We went to Kickstarter, and that was the second point of feedback. I was like, "Yeah, we're on the right track here." Oh, so you guys were you guys got investors even before you went over the Kickstarter? Yeah, just to get a few things off the ground. It was it was small angels, um, but that was I mean, but that was the first feedback we were getting. It was like, would an investor invest in this concept? Right? Could we get friends, family, angel money? Uh, in our, from our networks with this concept and with this kind of technological team. Got it. So you guys were uh, pitching different ideas. Were you? How were you getting in front of uh, potential investors? Like, what, where were you going to 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 pitch your ideas? Yeah, we went to. Um, you know, the main thing was obviously just like personal networks, but in Los Angeles, there's a lot of opportunity. Pasadena Angels, a bunch of other angel groups that we networked into, and um, yeah, just, I mean, just never, never ceasing to talk about your project and leaving no stone unturned was really what 
eventually got us to find proper investors. Um, and our main investors today actually came through just uh, a, f- a friend of ours who we once pitched the idea on because we knew he was connected and he happened to be on a flight to flight home from a business trip. And the guy sitting next to him happened to be an angel investor who was really passionate about cameras. And he said, hey, I've got a friend who is building something, uh, a hardware device in Los Angeles and and got his card and, and gave him his card and connected us over email. and. Uh, yeah, he's our, he's, his group's been our lead investor to date, still is, through a Series A. Yeah, I guess that that's the uh, that, that persistence and, and constant pitching certainly paid off for you guys. Can you walk us through the typical, I guess, cycle that you have to go through to get into a room to do that pitch that, that in your case, resulted in an investment? Because it sounds like there's a lot of networking involved. What were the yeah. typical steps before you actually get into the room? get to sit down with an investor and, and be able to get the opportunity to, to potentially get an investment? Well, I mean, you def- definitely need to have a good and ready pitch deck. That's, that's definitely something that we were always working on and honing and iterating on. Um, and then it was about pounding our just personal network first. Um, going online, you know, and just applying to things wasn't always the greatest way. Like even things like tech stars and, and kind of, um, you know, maybe the more recognized uh, groups that are out there, like just filling out an application never seemed to be enough for us. So it was really about just getting an intro, finding out someone that knew. I would, we, we went through our collegiate circles, looked through those angel networks and just friends who may be in investment banking or VC spaces or private equity. Um, that helped a lot in the beginnings. Um, but yeah, it really came through like, man, old bosses. <laughs> You know, like uh, old uh, dad's friends, oftentimes, just like their business networks were helpful, um, family friends, uncles, and, and and just, like I said, just being so persistent until eventually you got to the right person. And when you knew you got to the right person, you got the insert to the VC, you, you had your email, your pitch deck, uh, you got the NDA set up, yada, yada. Uh, got them on the phone as fast as possible and tried to set up an in-person meeting as fast as possible after that. And being able to meet them, because in the early, early stages, they're investing in people, they're investing in a belief in the problem and the solution, but mostly the people. And and I heard that so many times that it was about just making sure um, you carried the passion, the dedication, and the expertise, um, or at least the vision and ability to get the expertise if you for what you needed um mapping hey your money's going to this getting me the right developers and i know this for this reason you know that was um that was what would close the deals and yeah we were in rooms with vcs and we're in rooms at pitch pitch shows and all sorts of different things but eventually it really shook out to just uh cobbling together a bunch of angels and that that family money and family offices ended up being the way we we ended up but that's just because that's who was into it. That was who was into us. It could have been a different path uh, if we had a different idea and different people. Mm. Were there certain things that you maybe were not doing when you first started pitching that by the end, closer towards uh, maybe even today, that you definitely want to make sure you guys hit on whenever you pitch your 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 product, your company to an investor? Yeah, just keep it simple. You know, um, being able to very clearly articulate who and what for this product 
is is creating and just you know all the i think in my mind as i've gone through ces now many years and uh, lots of shows and pitch decks the ones that i everyone always gravitates toward are just the simple ideas that you can immediately get in just a few words you know ours is rugged backup device for content creators who prefer to travel without a laptop and just being able to repeatedly say that you know there's people that will gravitate to that message and there's people that will not and the just leading strong with that and having a clear articulated vision for your product and your organization that's the root of it we cater other messages for different audiences like you know if there's different context for the pitch then you, you, you massage your the rest of your deck to fit that audience so you know that that's also important you know just always have one deck it's always just constant iteration hmm. were there specific over time where you did you recognize that there's common questions that investors were asking yeah yeah you know uh this was a number of years ago so thankfully uh, this isn't like at the forefront of my my memory but yeah different types of investors were different interested in different things when you're in meetings with vcs it was it was all, it was way more money and business planning than um when i was in angel and family offices it was about vision and team, you know, and uh, I was sometimes shocked in VC meetings when you would get these, you know, they'd be pushing you and pressuring you and probing you like, well, okay, would you be willing to relinquish your board? And we're like, what do you, you know, re- relinquish your position if it came t- for the best of the organization? They'd ask you these, you know, challenging questions of, of like, are you willing to cede to my dominance? And, yeah. and those were interesting experiences to encounter um, early on, especially when you're like, there's, man, there's only three of us right now. We're, you know, we're trying to make this thing a thing. Like, well, why does this even matter? But sure, I guess, like, if you're going to give me the money and let me do this, then <laughs> I'd consider it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with the other offices, you know, they wanted to see a demo. They, they wanted to see what we were saying be a thing. And once we got that prototype up and running, it was it was a lot easier for us to uh, mm-hmm. to pitch and, and evolve the uh, the funding. And when you were trying to get to these VCs, or maybe earlier on with the angel investors, were there gatekeepers involved that, that made it difficult for you to get into the room? I don't I don't think that the, there there was a lot of um, blockers. And honestly, if like sometimes they would send a junior analysts out to our office, even doing a, a roundup of LA or whatever it was, if they were from the Bay Area. And and we'd had people come through our office and, and they, they kind of acted as gatekeepers, like, hey, it's not quite ready yet. Once you get to this stage, then talk to us again. Like that that happened. Um, and it was great. You know, they gave us feedback on our product. We knew what they were looking for. It maybe it was a specific type of app experience and we hadn't fully vetted that out at the, at the early stages. And um we eventually came into, yeah, just the, the money before we actually got any further with a lot of the VCs. Got it. So you mentioned that this was being done, all this was being done when you guys still had your nine to five and everyone was doing this on the side. What do you think was the most valuable use of your time back then early on when it was just you know nights and weekends where you could dedicate this time? Yeah, the majority of the time was being spent developing prototypes and translating that prototype into a, you know, a pitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, that pitch helped us fund the Kickstarter, which then helped us fund the next round of funding, which funded manufacturing, which started to gain us, you know, revenue. And, uh, yeah, and those 
that revenue and the vision for future products, the 2.0 that's now um, through its Kickstarter and coming into manufacturing very soon is going to help us fund you know, our Series B. So it's kind of a cycle, and we're just trying to grow it to a point of profitability. Um, and and yeah, that's a, that's kind of kind of the journey there. But early on, it was really just prototype, prototype, prototype. Having that tangible good totally changes, um, you know, your 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 position at the table. Now, the the prototype development process, you mentioned that going back to it, you guys had uh, one co-founder, it sounded like that, knew how to build this kind of stuff, but the rest of you guys were, did, didn't have that experience. So were you guys focused on on developing the pitch and the marketing and the sales behind Like, What were you guys, how, how did the work get split up? Yeah, so the work got split up early on when we're dedicated on the prototype. Uh, Patrick, who is our third, uh, third technical co-founder, was dedicated to hardware development. Um, Tim actually just taught himself how to code and we had a couple, uh, like mentors and, and kind of like, you know, uh, freelance helpers who dedicated some time to support that. We had a small bit of funding. So some of the harder challenges, we just like getting our Wi-Fi booted up. Um, you know, we were able to, we were able to outsource some of those. Patrick was kind of doing some of the low level embedded, embedded hardware, software. Um, and I was doing, a lot of the marketing pitch building alongside Tim and Patrick as well. I mean, it was collaborative and some of the UX design and trying to like mock up user experiences and apps. I came from a consumer research um, background. So um, trying to, uh, you know, map consumer insights and problems to tangible app experiences and solutions was what I was dedicated to early on. Mm-hmm. At what point did you guys all did you guys all decide to quit your day jobs at the same time, or when when was it? The one was a realization that you guys should do that, make that jump. Yeah, we got a little enough money, and and Patrick and Tim did first, and grabbed uh, and because they were coding so much, and I just held on to mine up until about a m- month before Kickstarter, just because just because I could. I was working remote too, so kind of mm-hmm. helped. Yeah. Okay. So you guys then prepare for the launch on Kickstarter. Talk to us about that. What did you guys do leading up to to the launch? Yeah. I mean, Kickstarter is definitely a beast. It has a recipe. Um, there's definitely like a roadmap to doing that. That you can look across many, many Kickstarters and many, many blog posts and <laughs> books and guides now to kind of piece together. Um, but you know, it's about a ninety. 120, comfortably, I'd say 120 day preparation period to get a Kickstarter up and running. You know, you've got your video, you've got your page design, um, you've got your, like, the title and short description of your product has to be dialed, your product imagery and prototyping, so 3D prints, et cetera. Um, and then submitting it to Kickstarter, getting feedback, getting it approved and, and kicking it out with, influencers and a, and a full marketing plan. Uh, I think one of the key things though is actually building a community going into it. So you, you're relying on your Kickstarter as your place to build your audience is definitely not the way to do it. You need to develop and build an audience that uh, you can bring into the Kickstarter. So that was a lot of what we were focused on for really the 180 days, I'd, I'd say, out going to the Kickstarter was we had a small Instagram community of passionate creators we had a shared hashtag. Uh, we grew that community to about 10,000 people. 
you know, had an email list of about 20K going into our Kickstarter that were all aware of Narbox as an idea. Um, and we surveyed them to engage them in the, in the kind of the user experience um, and product development. And by having people involved, they were the first people to back us, you know, in the first couple of days. And you have to have a good day one. Without a good day one, your Kickstarter is not going to do well. So that was like a phone. I mean, we were we didn't sleep for three days and had, uh, you know, basically a, a call center set up in our house, uh, in our garage that office and, and called every single person we knew. And through all that network kind of pitching that we had for a whole year about the, the concept to try and just get money, we met so many people that were bought into us and into our vision that gaining support on day one was a lot easier. So I, I find a lot of times with early founders and people, entrepreneurs coming up with their ideas, they're very scared to share what their idea is in fear of someone stealing it. And I mean, it's a totally rational fear, but it's definitely not going to help you with the Kickstarter. And it's definitely going to make it harder to get funding and grow a community and build a network um and get feedback even so we just we just yeah we talked about it to everyone we freaking could and signed them up and um that was that was the difference maker See, ten thousand e- ten thousand uh followers on instagram twenty thousand emails that's, that's a huge community to to have before you guys even have a product what, what made them want to follow along with you even though you, there was nothing that they could essentially get from you guys just yet yeah, they just were passionate about what we were passionate about. And I think that's the, that's the shared, a shared set of values and, and, you know, kind of way of life was, was what we were founded on. And, and that's what that community was. Basically, we would repost people's photos that were tagged, you know, with, uh, Narbox and, and we would, um, yeah, we would just people contributed and collaborated and we talked to all of them. And we would post these surveys and get product feedback and have conversations with individuals. And, you know, one of the early uh, community members who started following us just because they liked our Instagram page is now one of our software engineers. Um, when we put job application up, he applied. He was our first intern um, that we ever brought in from college. And when he graduated, we hired him on. That's awesome. So these um, 20,000 emails that you guys collected, what was there an incentive to get them to join? Like, what were they doing? How were you collecting the emails? That was a combination of things, just giveaways, um, surveys, refer friends. We did one giveaway going in that was like taking that core community and just inviting their friends to get an incentive to win like a, a drone. It was a DJI Phantom 2 at the time. Um, and... Uh, yeah, we just bought it and put it up for a giveaway to help kind of grow that base. But through that email list, then we started messaging and surveying and bringing all of those people into the product uh, development experience. I like that. So you guys didn't have a product yet. You're in pre-launch phase, but that shouldn't stop you from from having some kind of incentive for people to want to be a part of, of it. And you first started off with kind of like baiting them with a product yeah. that, that might not be exactly the same as yours, but it certainly attracts the same audience. You guys got a like a drone, and that's obviously very, probably going to be a very similar audience to the people that want to buy your product. They join the email through those giveaways, and then from there, you were able to pull them more into your universe through like surveying. What, what, like, what were you sending them to keep them engaged and get them to learn more about what was to come? 
Yeah, we would we would we just did surveys, um, mostly just like, hey, here's here's, you know, just ranking problems that you may be having, telling us what cameras you have, um, what's your current workflow or backup solution or editing editing suite together based data for demographic info, and then having them kind of, I don't know, you kind of like would present questions about how they may rank certain feature sets, whether they were looking for being able to back up and edit on their phone or sorry, back up, sorry, back up in the field or edit on their phone, whether it's a photo or a video that they wanted. Um, did they want to, you know, continue to edit on their computer or go to the cloud? Like we would just come up with every feature we were thinking about creating and we would have people rank and comment on it. And, and it was kind of like a crowdsourcing. Like we, we knew pretty much what we wanted to build, but then we would kind of add some objective data to it and, and just get some numbers to back up and prioritize features, so to speak, um, through this community of creators. Can you, can you think of something from the, the survey or, or data that you collected from the survey that might have led you guys astray? It, like the data seemed to say one thing, but then didn't actually play out in reality? You know, I, I don't think anything really led us astray from the data. There was a audience that was participating in the surveys that gave us information that would either enforce or not certain hypotheses that we had. Um, we still made our own decisions sometimes based off of what we thought was the correct answer. It wasn't like we went straight off the data. So we, we, we used it as a weighted, you know, part to reinforce or not certain questions we may have had. Um, but, you know, so, some of the struggles we had was just we, you know, we tried to bite off more than I think we could chew. And that was not a problem of surveys. That was just a problem of, um, and that, and I mean this specifically to the first product. I just mean that's a, as a problem of, of time and resources and, and just understanding of the technology still. And just like the time it really takes to make something like this that says hardware and software intensive. Um, there could have been things we did in the user experience or the feature sets that, maybe we're pared down enough that um, or given more time or thought or testing, for example, that were vetted to maybe get better reviews here or there. I mean, there were definitely a, a handful of bad reviews. There were a lot of great reviews and understanding our audience and understanding our resources versus future sets was something that took us time to hone in on. And, and we really learned a lot from in the first product development stages and release, but we're, we're so dialed on it now for what we're doing for 2.0, way more comfortable um, at scoping. And, you know, part of that was just the the flux and instability as we're growing the organization. We were adding developers as we were still trying to get a product to market. And once we had that really core group of software team together, that like, like we do today, the structure in place and all the all the resources we need, whether it's actually having a proper in-house UI, UX designer, Scrum Master, um, all these important members of a good software team, um, having a set culture and way of scoping and scoring and, and managing Agile, um, all of those things really weren't in place in the early days. It was kind of a wild west. And having having that in place is so critical. Yeah, speaking of that, so after the first Kickstarter, I think this was a story that, that you were telling us, which was that you guys shipped that first 3,500 units of the NAR box, and it didn't exactly go as planned. Can you tell us what happened? 
Yeah, it was a, I mean, there was a number of problems. First, uh, problems at the warehouse level. So we had we had problems shipping out to EU, and we had orders got lost. We lost money on inventories that took us, you know, six months to claim. You know, something somewhere up to fifty thousand dollars in inventory that you know maybe was completely lost that had to file insurance claims on. You know, it took time to get that money back, and yada yada. But then angry customers come from that because they didn't have their products and we didn't know where they were and um it was just a number of mistakes there that we just bent over backwards and did everything we could for our customers to kind of save our um kind of save our image there and and the, and the other problem we faced was uh some of the early units having these kind of battery failures just just you know early bug first units that we thought we had solved um, it took us probably four months to solve the initial problem, but there were still a few units out there, maybe like a hundred total, but still it's a hundred angry people. And we, yeah, like I said, we bent over backwards. We gave them full replacements and we overnighted them units all around the world um, and lost some money in the process, but built some loyal customers. Uh, one of the, the saving graces um, of, of those two problems and actually, a third problem just being like not delivering exactly what the the cons- all every consumer envisioned the product would do. You know, we we put out Narbox 1.0, and people were assuming it did X, Y, and Z, even if we were saying it did A, B, and C. And they just, you know, they 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 saw it as one thing, and we saw it as a different thing. And and having that alignment between your customers um, and your product is just everything. Um, and, and we missed missed out on that a little bit with the first one. We just didn't meet every single person's expectations, which is just a lack of understanding of what exactly they saw it as to them, um, but also our ability to deliver that in a timely manner. So those three, those were the three problems. And, and kind of our saving grace through a lot of that was, uh, A, uh, frequent software updates. So we were just pounding through software updates and firmware updates, and that was super, super helpful. And we just... I mean, we were working 24 hours a day, it felt like, for the first three, six months just to get the code up the snuff for the people who did have units. Um, and then the second thing was customer support. So we, I, a couple of us set up an intercom service, you know, awesome app, um, and just live chat and email. And we just, I mean, we got people on the phone on long conversations and every angry customer that came in, and it was just our goal. And I mean, Tim and I and, um, a couple of the other members of the team on the marketing and support team were just on that thing all day and night and talking to customers. And, um, and I think that made a big difference to kind of saving face and, and building loyalty because that's what you have to come out with. If you don't have a, a community that gets behind your product and sure we lost some people along the way, you know, I've, I bet you some of those people came back and, and back our second generation just because they had conversations with them. And we gave them a return willingly. Yeah, one of the things that you said that I really like is that whoever's closest to the customer wins. What does this mean to you? Uh, that's everything. Yeah, I, I, that, that, that means a few things to me. Um, we've dedicated full-time roles in our organization and are continuing to double down on customer research. So constant, frequent, um, active participation from every member of the product and marketing teams 
um, with a weekly dedicated meeting to review observations in the market that builds a large customer research database with, um, I think, you know, we are, you have hundreds of nuggets, if not in thousands now. Um, and a nugget to us is just like anything from, um, just a, a statement we heard in an, in a user experience research interview on a one-on-one conversation or we saw as a Facebook, um, comment and we're all just ready and seeing those things and documenting and databasing them, um, translating who it was, what type of person they are, persona that we may have denoted them as. Maybe they're a professional photographer. Maybe they're a beginner photographer. Um, you know, maybe they're a hobbyist, a wedding photographer, all sorts of different personas. Documenting them to a huge database and being able to quantify problems, um, quantify solutions, and prove out hypotheses that we have set in our product. And then... Um, building solutions that are well tested. So app features and, um, marketing messages get tested in focus groups. Um, just doubling down on focus groups and beta testing with this 2.0 product. Um, iterating on software and user experience design. There's just so many ways to do that. And, um, the intercom is definitely a huge role of it is just having active, frequent conversations with anybody who wants to chat. You know, if people will come in and I'll have a conversation just about, you know, the best SD card for their cameras. It's nothing to do with Narbox, but they feel comfortable talking to us about getting advice from, uh, for their camera workflow. And that's what we want. Want people to see us as thought leaders. They want to have us as, we want to make sure we're top of mind. You know, that's a common term you may hear, just whether it's through emails and blog posts, um, articles that maybe you publish on your own website or across the web, having a meaningful knowledge base. Um, is all part of a good customer support system. And all of that just builds into one beautiful picture for just staying close to the customer. And I think delivering a product that actually meets the customer needs in the face of competition is the the final output of all of that. So uh, the reviews you get back and all of that will build in the word of mouth marketing you get in that early referencing of, of your first of your product delivery is going to be what makes or break the future of your organization. Um, and if you're not close to your customer early on, then uh, you're not going to make it. So you mentioned that you use Intercom to help manage a lot of these uh, feed, this feed, feedback communication with the customer. Any other apps or tools or services that you rely on to help run the business? Our, our, our database, customer databases run through Airtable, um, but that's just internal. Um, yeah, I mean, we're big Trello and Slack people. <laughs> Uh, but interacting with customers, Intercom is our kind of way of doing that. Got it. So what about the website? How is that, how is that, uh, was that designed in house? Or did you guys hire a design company for, for this? Uh, we went through a few stages on the website and we're about to go through another, uh, in the process of redesigning the website for kind of the future, um, product that's about to come out. And the first time around we hired, uh, a highly regarded in the Shopify community. Um, they changed, they, they merged. So it was, it was rocket code originally. And then they merged with BV Excel out of Santa Monica and, um, they're in Santa Monica and, um, and rocket code was in Columbus, Ohio. Um, really awesome, incredible designers. Um, but this time around our, in our, we, we've hired a full-time UI UX designer, um, for our applications, and he comes from a background. Uh, one of his previous roles was not in that application, but in web 
uh, product merchandising design, Shopify as well. So he's actually now creating our website in-house, which is awesome. Um, and we just have some hired guns to code it out. Very cool. So you mentioned that you guys are going through another redesign. What is the the purpose of the redesign? Like, what are you guys focused on trying to solve? Yeah, totally. So the first one, you know, our first go around with Narbox 1.0 was about creating just a single page, uh, land, like a single landing page buying experience. Um, one page, right? And the evolution now of both the product and the organization is just adding way more dimensions to it. So we're no longer providing a single product and a single app, but we are developing um, the Narbox 2.0. We're still going to be delivering the Narbox 1.0. We have a suite of accessories, including battery chargers, re- replaceable batteries, um, uh, high-end card readers specifically designed for um specifically designed for photographers and videographers. So, you know, our device has an SD card reader, but many of our users are CF shooters or CFast 2.0 shooters or XQD shooters as well. So providing um, shielded USB uh, USB 3.1, USB-C, Type-C readers is an essential part of the whole product experience. Um, that's something that we didn't have the first time around. And... UHS two readers. So having the max speed opportunities uh, for our users to just kind of come to one place and buy everything they need for their mobile workflow solutions. And then we're also building an, e- an ecosystem of mobile applications. So not only do we have one app called Narbox, but we're actually developing multiple apps. And so the, the, the change that we have is now we have the need for a storefront, um, not just buy now which we bypassed the store before in the first go around of the code with 1.0 because it was just one thing to buy. <clears throat> so from a single SKU to a multi-SKU environment and a multi-software experience environment, we just need to have more landing pages. Um, we want to build out our own custom knowledge base. We kind of had plugged in the Intercom one and now we're m- migrating to a custom built off of Zendesk. So we're, we're kind of mix- mixing and matching some tools Um to custom design a lot of different experiences on the website, both for uh, pre-purchase and post-purchase. And um, yeah, just there's just a need to re-architect the entire, the entire experience. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time, Will. Narbox.com, G-N-A-R-B-O-X.com is a website. What's next? What do you guys, what do you want to see the business be this time next year? Okay, so this time next year, we'll be going into... Uh, the first full holiday holiday cycle with 2.0 on the market. So that's going to be super critical time. Um, our big trade show every year is Photo Plus Expo. You can check us out this year. Um, that's late October in New York City. Um, so we'll be we'll be pumping 2.0 pretty hard. There's some stuff in the background that I just can't share. Um, I'm excited for next year. We'll continue to be finding partnerships and opportunities to bring more meaningful app experiences and hardware experiences. Um, but yeah, next year, you know, our goal in 2019 by the end of it is really to just become a profitable organization and relying on um, e-commerce and direct consumer and proper customer support is going to be, be one of the big keys to success. I think seeing a big translation from selling off Amazon and B&H and trying to sell more direct to the consumer with, um, upsell involved in that with our accessories is um, part of part of what I think is going to make us a su- successful organization and a profitable organization. And, and yeah, Shopify is a big part of that. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Will. Thanks, Felix. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. To get your exclusive 30-day extended trial, visit shopify.com slash masters.